podcast, Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Every year, PRIO holds its annual Peace Address, inviting distinguished guests to reflect on how to contribute to the creation of a world in which violence is the exception and peace is the norm. To bring these interesting, inspiring addresses to a wider audience, we'll be sharing some of them on the podcast as well. First up is Steven Pinker. In 2019, Pinker held the Peace Address on the topic Enlightenment Now. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He conducts research on language, cognition, and social relations, and writes for publications such as the New York Times, Time, and The Atlantic. He's also the author of 12 books. Thank you. Your Royal Highness, Minister, Your Excellency, Norwegian friends, uh, friends at Prio. Thank you for coming. Happy birthday, Prio. Prio changed my life. Uh, I used to study irregular verbs. Uh, this, this afternoon, I will tell you uh, about the uh, results of the intellectual journey that uh, Prio uh, helped me begin. From time to time, we all ask some deep and difficult questions. Why is the world filled with trouble? How can we make it better? How do we give meaning and purpose to our lives? Well, as imponderable as these questions may seem, many people have answers to them. For example, morality is dictated by God in holy scriptures. When everyone obeys his laws, the world will be perfect. Or, problems are the fault of evil people who must be shamed, punished, defeated. Or, our tribe should claim its rightful greatness under the control of a strong leader who embodies its authentic virtue. Or, in the past, we lived in a state of order and harmony until alien forces brought on decadence and degeneration. We must restore the society to its golden age. Well, what about the rest of us? Many people know what they don't believe, but they have much more trouble articulating what they do believe. In Enlightenment Now, I suggest that there is an alternative system of uh, beliefs and values, the one that we associate with the Enlightenment. Namely, that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. Many people embrace the ideals of the Enlightenment without being able to name or describe them. As a result, they faded into the background as a kind of bland status quo or establishment. The other ideologies have passionate advocates, and I suggest that Enlightenment ideals, too, need a positive defense and an explicit commitment, and that is what I have uh, tried to do. The Enlightenment, I I suggest, centers on four themes, reason, science, humanism, and progress. Let me say a few words about each. It all begins with reason, with the understanding that traditional sources of belief are generators of delusion, faith, revelation, tradition, authority, charisma, mysticism, intuition, the parsing of sacred texts, are all ways of being wrong. Reason, in contrast, is non-negotiable. As soon as you try to provide reasons why we should trust anything other than reason, 
as soon as you start to explain why you're right, why other people should believe you, that you're not lying or full of crap, you've lost the argument because you have appealed to reason. Now, as a cognitive psychologist, I would be the first to acknowledge that human beings on their own are not particularly reasonable. Uh, as a species, we are likely to generalize from anecdotes, we reason from stereotypes, we seek evidence that confirms our beliefs, and we blow off evidence that disconfirms them, and we're all overconfident about our knowledge, our wisdom, and our rectitude. But people are capable of reason if they adopt certain norms. Free speech, open criticism and debate, logical analysis, fact-checking, and empirical testing, which leads to the second Enlightenment ideal, science. Science is based on the conviction that the world is intelligible, that we can try to understand it by formulating possible explanations and testing them against reality. Science has shown itself to be our most reliable means of understanding the world, including ourselves. An important Enlightenment theme is that there can be a science of human nature and that beliefs about society are testable, just like any other beliefs about the world. Science, moreover, provides not just technical know-how, but fundamental insights about the human condition. Naturalism. The universe has no goal or purpose related to human welfare, with the implication that if we want to improve that welfare, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves. Entropy. In a closed system, without input of energy, disorder increases. Things fall apart, stuff happens. Not because the universe has it in for us, but because there are vastly more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. Evolution. Humans are products of a competitive process which selects for reproductive success, not well-being. The implication was spelled out by Immanuel Kant during the Enlightenment that out of the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can be built. The third Enlightenment theme, I suggest, is humanism, that the ultimate moral purpose is to reduce the suffering and enhance the flourishing of human beings and other conscious creatures. Well, you might think, uh, enhancing human flourishing, who could possibly be against that? Well, as it happens, there are alternatives to humanism, such as that the ultimate good is to enhance the glory of the tribe, the nation, the race, the class, or the faith, to obey the dictates of a divinity and pressure others to do the same, to achieve feats of heroic greatness, or to advance some mystical dialectic or struggle or pursuit of a utopia or messianic age. Humanism is feasible, I suggest, because people are endowed with a sense of sympathy, a concern with the welfare of others. Now, by default, our circle of sympathy is rather small. We tend to feel the pain only of our blood relatives, our close friends and allies, cute little furry baby animals, and that's about it. But the circle of sympathy can be expanded through the forces of cosmopolitanism, the mixing of people and ideas, such as education, journalism, art, mobility, and reason. Once you begin to engage in reason uh, uh, with someone, uh, I can't insist that only my interests count because I'm me and you're not, and hope for you to take me seriously. Reason implies an inherent symmetry of uh, interests. Finally, we get to progress that if we apply knowledge and sympathy to reduce suffering and enhance flourishing, we can gradually succeed. 
Now, you might ask, if human nature doesn't change, how could progress even be possible? And an answer from the Enlightenment is that it's possible through benign institutions that allow us to deploy energy and knowledge to push back against entropy, that magnify the better angels of our nature, as Abraham Lincoln called them, like reason and sympathy, while marginalizing our inner demons, our biases, our illusions, our tribalism, our thirst for dominance and vengeance. What do I mean by Enlightenment institutions? Well, some of them that we continue to enjoy include democracy, declarations of rights, markets, organizations for global cooperation, and institutions of truth-seeking, such as academies, scientific societies, and a free press. So, 250 years later, how did that Enlightenment thing work out? You might ask. Well, I have found that if you uh, ask most intellectuals, the answer is not very well. Because I have found that intellectuals hate progress. And intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. <laughs> if you think we can solve problems, I have been told, that means that you have a blind faith and a quasi-religious belief in the outmoded superstition of the false promise of the myth of the onward march of inevitable progress. <laughs> you are a cheerleader for vulgar American can-do-ism with the rah-rah spirit of boardroom ideology, Silicon Valley, and the Chamber of Commerce. You are a practitioner of Whig history, a naive optimist, a Pollyanna, and of course a pangloss, referring to the Voltaire character who declared, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Well, as it happens, Professor Pangloss was what we would today call a pessimist. A true optimist would believe that there can be much better worlds than the one that we find today. But this is irrelevant because the question of whether progress has taken place is not a matter of optimism. It's not a matter of seeing the glass as half full rather than half empty or of wearing rose-colored glasses. It's an empirical hypothesis. Human well-being can be measured. Life, health, sustenance, prosperity, peace, freedom, safety, knowledge, leisure, happiness, if they've increased over time, I submit that would be progress. Well, let's go to the data. Beginning with the most precious thing of all, life. For most of human history, life expectancy at birth hovered around uh, 30 years. Uh, then with the development of vaccination, uh, sanitation, antibiotics, and other advances in public health and medicine, life expectancy has increased globally to more than 71 years. And virtually no one guesses that it's that high. The escape from uh, early death was uneven over regions of the world. It began in uh, Europe and the Americas, but more recently Asia has almost caught up, and sub-Saharan Africa has shown spectacular gains. For most of human history, the biggest contributor to low life expectancy was the death of children who are uh, uniquely vulnerable and uh, whose tender age brings the average down. Uh, in uh, Sweden, for example, 250 years ago, one-third of children did not live to see their fifth birthday. Sweden uh, brought its rate of child mortality down by a factor of about uh, 100, and uh, they were followed by other uh, parts of the world, such as in North America, Canada, in East Asia, South Korea, in Latin America, Chile, 
and in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, Ethiopia, which brought its rate down from uh, 25% to 6% in just a couple of decades. That's still much too high, but the progress is continuing. Mothers, too, were in mortal danger when they gave birth. Uh, 250 years ago, 1% of Swedish women uh, died in childbirth. Sweden brought its rate down by a factor of 250, um, as have other parts of the world, such as the United States, Malaysia, and Ethiopia. Health. For most of human history, the biggest uh, killer was infectious disease. That is no longer the major cause of uh, morbidity and mortality in rich countries, but it continues to devastate poor countries. But just in the last 20 years, there has been progress against the five most lethal infectious diseases for children, uh, pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and HIV-AIDS. Sustenance. It takes about... Uh, 2,500 calories to feed a young adult uh, male, and for most of history, societies were unable to grow that many calories until the British Agricultural Revolution in the 18th century, where uh, because of advances in agronomy, like crop rotation and better uh, planting and harvesting techniques, uh, later the invention of synthetic fertilizer, the mechanization of agriculture, the selective breeding of vigorous hybrids and transportation networks that could bring food from farm to table, uh, country after country developed the ability to feed itself, including China and India, and here you have the graph for the world as a whole. Now, this would be a dubious form of progress if all of those calories were simply going to making uh, fat people fatter. But in fact, they have uh, reduced the rate of undernourishment which uh, just 50 years ago uh, affected 35% of people in the developing world. That has fallen to less than 15%. First in Latin America, then in Asia, and now it's starting to come down in sub-Saharan Africa. And the most severe effects of insufficient calories of all take place during famines. Famine is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and it could bring devastation to any part of the world. But uh, as this graph shows, famines have become uh, extremely rare, and they are now a consequence not of an inability to grow enough food, but an inability to get it to conflict regions and the most remote parts of the world. Prosperity. Uh, it is uh, sometimes said that poverty needs no explanation. It's the natural condition of humankind. What needs an explanation is uh, wealth, prosperity. And for most of human history, there was little um, advance in the ability to uh, produce wealth. This graph of the gross world product from the year one to the present shows that for about 1,600 years, economic growth was less than one pixel high on the graph. Then, with the Industrial Revolution, advances in technology, the spread of education, the development of financial institutions uh, like markets and uh, banks, and the globalization of trade, uh, gross world product has increased by almost uh, 200-fold since the early 18th century. The great escape from universal 
poverty and squalor, as uh, the Nobel economist Angus Deaton has called it, was uh, again highly uneven across regions of the world. It uh, first took place in uh, countries like the US and the UK, but now South Korea uh, has almost caught up. Uh, Chile has shown spectacular growth, and China and India, though still behind, are uh, showing exponential increases as well. Here is the, uh, the graph for the world as a whole. Now again, this would be a, a dubious form of progress if all of this economic growth was simply going to the proverbial 1%. But in fact, it has decimated the rate of extreme poverty defined by uh, the World Bank as $1.90 uh, per person per day, US $2,015. Um, by that criterion, 200 years ago, probably 90% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, and that has fallen to less than 9%. As a result, international inequality, the gap between rich countries and poor countries, after necessarily increasing with the Industrial Revolution, as some countries uh, left behind the, uh, the pack of uh, universally uh, poor countries, uh, it is now turning a corner because poor countries are getting richer at a faster rate than uh, rich countries. Now, of course, within rich countries, inequality has not um, uh, decreased, it has uh, increased, but that doesn't mean that rich countries have become indifferent to the needs of the, uh, of, uh, the poor, the sick, the uh, elderly, and the young. Quite the contrary, for most of European history, uh, European countries devoted no more than 1.5% of their GDP to social transfers, to education, to health care, to uh, welfare, to uh, old age pensions. But in the 20th century, uh, every country went on a, a huge expansion of their social programs so that today the median uh, OECD country redistributes 22% uh, of its wealth. It ranges from uh, a low of about uh, 20% in countries like uh, US, Canada, and Australia to more than 30% to 30% in countries like France, but every country has an extensive um, social safety net. As a result, poverty in rich countries, when it is measured in disposable income, that is after taxes and transfers, has fallen in the United States from uh, more than one-third 50 years ago to uh, 7%. And when poverty is measured in terms of consumption, what people can afford to buy in terms of food, clothing, and shelter, poverty has fallen from uh, 30% to uh, 3%. Well, and now a topic that is of intense interest to this very institution, peace. Uh, as a rough first approximation, you, one could say that for most of human history, the natural state of relations between great powers and uh, empires and major countries was war, and peace was merely a in brief interlude between wars. We can see that in a graph. This one is not from uh, Prio or UCDP, but from uh, Jack Levy, uh, which looked uh, at great power wars, wars between the 800-pound gorillas of the day, and because of the power law distribution of war, the biggest wars account for the most deaths from all wars, big and small combined. What the graph shows is that three or four hundred years ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war. Today, the great powers are never at war. There has, the last time the great powers fought each other was uh, the United States against China in Korea more than uh, 65 years ago. Now, if we unpack that curve into its uh, components, we see that 
Uh, over the last half millennium, wars have gotten uh, shorter. There used to be things like the, the 30 Years' War, the 80 Years' War, the 100 Years' War. In the 20th century, there was the Six-Day War. Uh, wars became less common. These are great power wars. Uh, uh, unfortunately, even as wars were becoming shorter and less frequent, uh, thanks to in, uh, advances, if you want to call it that, in military organization and weaponry, uh, they became uh, more lethal. Uh, countries were better able to kill more people in a shorter period of time. Until uh, the, after the Second World War, where uh, the deadliness of wars began to decline in tandem with the frequency and duration of wars. So if you combine all three measures, you multiply it out, you see there's a, a lot of ups and downs, but that the last quarter of the 20th century was the most peaceful 25-year period in half a millennium. Uh, if we zoom in on the 20th century, we see that uh, before the decline of war, there were two unmistakable spikes in um, uh, in, in uh, battle deaths uh, centered around World War I and, and World War II, and these data are from, uh, at least in part, from Prio. But contrary to predictions that I grew up with, that it was only a matter of time before the world would see World War III pitting the U.S. against the Soviet Union and fought with nuclear weapons, and therefore even deadlier than World War II, we now know that uh, the Cold War ended more or less peacefully and World War III never happened. If we zoom in on the period after the, uh, the war, the one that has been documented by uh, Prio and then by uh, UCDP, we see, whoops, let's see, here's the graph, there it is, uh, that from a range of about uh, 20 battle deaths per 100,000 per year, this is now from all wars combined, not just great power wars, the world has gone on a uh, bumpy uh, roller coaster uh, with peaks around the time of the uh, Korean War and Chinese Civil War, the uh, Vietnam War, the Iran-Iraq War, and the Afghan Civil War, and the Syrian Civil War, but still the overall downward trajectory is uh, unmistakable. And I was just told last night over dinner that the new uh, UCDP PRIO data have come out and that the uh, next data point in this uh, series is even, even lower. So this, the Syrian Civil War was, uh, appears to have been a temporary reversal in the overall downward uh, trend. So this has sometimes been called the long piece, and uh, the natural question is, what caused it? Uh, there are a number of hypotheses. Three of them were identified by Immanuel Kant, and I see that his portrait is hanging in uh, a Priel building, presumably for that reason. Namely, uh, democracy, uh, and democracies statistically are a bit less likely to fight each other than uh, dictatorships. Trade, countries that uh, engage in trade are less likely to fight each other. You don't kill your customers, you don't kill your, uh, your debtors, and if it's cheaper to buy stuff than to steal it, then uh, plunder becomes less appealing. And an international community. And Bruce Russett and John O'Neill have shown that all three of these factors increased over the course of the 20th, second half of the 20th century, and all of them are statistical predictors of peace uh, going forward. But in addition, there's been a big increase in uh, peacekeeping forces by the United Nations and other organizations. This graph shows the number of peacekeeping operations since uh, the late 1940s. More important are the number of actual peacekeepers, because a, an undermatched peacekeeping force can often be ineffectual. Uh, this, and we know from uh, other statistical studies by uh, Paige Fortna and others that uh, even though sometimes international peacekeepers fail, on average,
Orange, they, uh, they really do keep the peace. Another factor, another possible explanation for the decline of war is the, uh, the outlawry of war uh, that was first proposed with the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. It kind of became a bit of a laughing stock when World War II broke out, but it was really uh, implemented seriously with the formation of the United Nations so that for the first time in history, war is illegal except in self-defense or with the approval of the uh, Security Council of the UN. And in an important book, Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro have argued that this deserves a good part of the credit for the, for the long peace, even though, of course, we can all think of, of, of violations. But they point out that uh, ordinary laws, like uh, laws against you know, parking in uh, handicapped zones, uh, all the way to, to uh, murder, there are exception, there are people break those laws too, but it's still better to have the laws than not to have it. And they present uh, evidence that uh, the uh, outlawry of war, the fact that, uh, that conquest is not recognized by the international community, contrary to hundreds of years in which to the victor went the spoils, deserves some of the credit. They note that since 1945, no UN member has gone out of existence uh, through conquest, and there have been virtually no annexations through conquest, and all of the claimed ones, such as most recently uh, Russia and Crimea, have not been recognized by the international community. Finally, there's, there are changing attitudes towards war. War used to be thought of as heroic and glorious and thrilling and manly, and peace was thought to be hedonistic and uh, selfish and uh, effeminate. Uh, that has changed, and now war is more often considered stupid, wasteful, repulsive, and cruel. Freedom and rights. Uh, at the, uh, we've all been... Um, Alarmed by the recession of democracy in countries like um, Russia and Turkey and Venezuela and Hungary. Uh, nonetheless, if you uh, measure the degree to which a country is autocratic or democratic and uh, count up all of the countries, then uh, according to uh, one data set, the Polity Project, the world has never been more democratic than it has been in uh, this decade. That from a handful of democracies a couple of uh, centuries ago, today a majority of countries for the first time in history are more democratic than autocratic, and a majority of people live in countries that are more democratic than autocratic. And I know that there is a new and uh, better data set, partly coming out of Prito, varieties of democracy, uh, but I only found out about it last night too late to plot the data on the graph, and I don't know how closely that they would uh, conform to the polity data set. Now, people are often astonished to uh, hear this claim because, as usual, our people's impressions are driven by headlines, by all of the countries that have become uh, less democratic, like, like Hungary, uh, and, but people tend to forget how many countries were completely autocratic not so long ago. When I was a, um, a student, for example, uh, the world had only 31 democracies, uh, half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain and under the control of uh, communist dictatorships. Spain and Portugal were literally fascist dictatorships, not fascist in the sense of what you call someone who's a little bit to the right of you, but really fascist. Uh, Greece was under the control of a military junta, the colonels. Most of Latin America was under the control of uh, right-wing uh, autocracies or military governments. Most of East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, Philippines, Indonesia, all of them democratic today. 
And the power of governments to brutalize their citizens has been uh, eroding. Uh, and one example would be the death penalty, which used to be uh, almost universal across countries. But for uh, more than 150 years, there's been a process of uh, abolishing the death penalty. Uh, today, uh, there are three countries a year uh, on average abolish the death penalty, most recently Malaysia, just a couple of months ago. And if current trends continue, which they probably won't, but if they did, the death penalty would vanish from the face of the earth uh, in less than 10 years. Also, many countries uh, have decriminalized homosexuality. Just in the last few months, India, Lebanon, and Trinidad and Tobago have joined the, uh, the, the list. Child labor. For most of human history, children were an economic resource that were put to work in uh, farms and factories. About 30% of children in the middle 19th century in England, uh, no surprise to people who've, who've read Charles Dickens, but uh, child labor was pretty much eliminated in England, United States, Italy, and other European countries by the 20th century. This being a consequence of uh, the... Uh, overall affluence, families no longer depended on the economic uh, value brought in by their children. Uh, the fact that in modern economies there is a premium on education, so children are ultimately more valuable if they go to school than if they uh, pick or plant crops. Uh, and a general increase in the valuation of the lives of children. And this is a trend that is uh, spreading to the world as a whole, as we see by these graphs, commemorated in 2015 when the uh, Nobel Peace Prize was shared by Kailash Satyarthi for his uh, efforts at reducing uh, child uh, labor, which these graphs show have been um, uh, partly successful. Violence, violent crime. Uh, in any part of the world that lives in a state of anarchy, there will be violent predation and uh, uh, theft, often triggering uh, vengeance and cycles of vendetta and blood feud. In Europe, for example, uh, the average homicide rate uh, is about 35 per 100,000 per year. Then with the establishment of uh, kingdoms out of the medieval patchwork of fiefs and baronies and uh, duchies, uh, the rule of law was imposed across larger territories, and the uh, homicide rate in most European countries fell to one per 100,000 per year. This is a process that tends to be repeated whenever uh, the uh, frontier regions and zones of anarchy are brought under the control of the rule of law. It happened again in colonial New England, happened again in the American Wild West, and it, uh, even in regions, uh, countries that continue to be uh, relatively violent, like Mexico, they were five times as violent a century ago. If we zoom in on the uh, last 60 years or so, we see that uh, the United States and other Western countries, after undergoing a um, bulge of violent crime in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, have brought their rate of violent crime down by half. And uh, though it's hard to estimate the crime rate for the world as a whole, at least by one estimate, the homicide rate has come down by about 30% just in the last 20 years. Not just homicide, but violence against women, uh, such as domestic violence against wives and girlfriends and rates of rape and sexual assault, which are down by about 75% in the United States since data were first kept in the 1970s. And uh, children have become safer. Rates of violent victimization at, at school, rates of physical abuse and sexual abuse. Again, these are data from the United States, but I suggest that similar trends have happened in European countries.
Indeed, we've been getting safer in just about every way. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks to the um, <coughs> uh, design of safety features in automobiles and the engineering of safer highways, uh, our, your, our chance of getting killed in a car crash have come down by 96% over the last century. We are 88% less likely to be mowed down on the sidewalk, 99% less likely to die in a plane crash, 59% less likely to fall to our deaths, 90% less likely to drown, 92% less likely to be burned to death, 92% less likely to be asphyxiated. There is, however, one major exception to the trend of increasing safety in the United States, and that is the category that statisticians call accidental death by uh, poison, solid, or liquid. It includes drug overdoses, and here you see the American uh, opioid epidemic, a, uh, a terrible tragedy and a counterexample to the overall trend of increasing safety. At the same time, we're 95% less likely to be killed on the job. We're even less likely to die in a so-called act of God, a drought, a flood, a volcano, a wildfire, a landslide, a, a meteor strike, an earthquake, uh, presumably not because God is any less angry with us, uh, but because of uh, improvements in the resilience of our infrastructure, in the ability to predict many disasters uh, before they occur, and in emergency response systems. And what about the quintessential act of God, the, the projectile hurled by Zeus? Yes, we are 97% less likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning. Knowledge, the natural state of humanity, is to be illiterate and ignorant. And for most of history, literacy was a perquisite of a privileged few, about 15% of Europeans uh, during the Renaissance, for example. But European and American countries uh, achieved universal literacy by the 20th century, and the world is uh, catching up. Today, the literacy rate worldwide is about 80%, 90% for people under the age of 25. Not just men, but women. Whereas uh, 250 years ago, only six British women could read and write for every 10 men who could, uh, England and other developed countries achieved gender parity in literacy by the end of the 20th century, and the world is very, very close. Even the worst, most backward countries when it comes to educating girls, uh, Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan, are showing uh, steep increases. And of course, we can associate that uh, advance with the other winner of the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize, Malala Yousafzai. And in perhaps the most incredible, astonishing, difficult to accept example of progress of all, we have been getting smarter. This is true. In a well-known uh, documented phenomenon known as the Flynn effect, IQ scores increased throughout the 20th century by about three points a decade. A probably a result of advances in public health and, um, and nutrition, but even more so in the spread of education and in the trickling down of technical and abstract sim and symbolic concepts from technology and science and academia into everyday life. Well, have any of these measures actually made our lives better? These are all things that uh, economists like to measure, but did they actually improve life as it is lived? And the answer is in many ways, yes. 
for example, 150 years ago, the average work week in Europe and the United States was 62 hours. That has fallen to less than 40 hours. And workers on average today get three weeks of paid vacation, even more in, uh, in Western Europe, uh, which would have been inconceivable in the 19th century. Also, thanks to the universal penetration of running water and electricity, and the widespread adoption of labor-saving devices like washing machines, vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, dishwashers, stoves, and microwaves, the amount of our lives that we forfeit to housework, which people say is their least favorite way of spending their time, has fallen from more than 60 hours a week to less than 15 hours a week. Because of the shortening work week and the uh, amount of our lives that we have reclaimed from uh, housework, the amount of leisure time has uh, increased over the last 50 years, both for men and for women. Now, you can't help but notice that the uh, gains for women have flattened, flattened out in the 1990s. And the main reason is that women today spend more time with their children. Contrary to stereotype, a married work, sorry, a single working woman today spends more time with her children than a married stay-at-home mother did in the 1950s. So forget the 1950s situation comedies. Uh, the reality is that, that today is the era in which parents spend more time with their families. We also fork over less of our paycheck to necessities from 60% a century ago to less than one-third today. Well, and the ultimate question is, does it make us any happier? There's reason to expect that it, that, uh, that it should. There is a strong uh, correlation between life satisfaction and uh, income. It is a, uh, here it's plotted on a logarithmic scale uh, for the obvious reason that an extra 100 euros will make a poor person much happier than it will a rich person. But nonetheless, the relationship holds throughout the scale and it holds uh, both between countries, that is, uh, rich countries are happier than poor countries, and it also happens within each country, represented by the arrow impaling each dot. So within every country, the people who are better off are uh, more satisfied with their lives. The expectation is, as the world gets more affluent, its people ought to get uh, happier. Now, we don't have happiness data going back uh, several centuries, but what we do have shows that for in 70% of countries for which we have data since 1981, happiness has increased. Um, interestingly, the uh, United States is not one of them. Happiness has decreased a bit, but uh, the United States was pretty happy to begin with. And as you can see, here I have the data for Sweden. Uh, it turns out that the data for Norway are almost identical, and as you, you know, in many years, Norway comes out as the world's happiest uh, country. And by the way, contrary to a, a, a widespread legend, uh, Bhutan is not a particularly happy country, <laughs> but many people seem to think it is. Um, there seems, there's also another misconception, is that the world is seeing, a, uh, despite all of these increases in well-being, people are committing suicide in record numbers. The reality is exactly the opposite. Suicide has come down by about 40% in the last um, uh, 20 years for which we have data. In uh, most, uh, although not all countries, and again, the United States gives a misleading impression of the world as a whole. In the United States, uh, after uh, a pretty steady decline, suicide rates have crept up since uh, 1999. Now, um, I, this is a nice occasion for me to uh, debunk another widespread myth about human well-being, uh, 
especially popular in the United States, which is uh, many uh, people believe that Sweden, and, uh, and to a certain extent, uh, they believe that Norway have sky-high suicide rates. Uh, turns out that that is uh, false, and here, here are the data showing since 1990. This is uh, Norway, this is uh, Sweden. Uh, this, these are the data for the world as a whole. Norway's rate is below the world average. Sweden's is very slightly above. United States is uh, slightly higher. Uh, I tracked down this widespread belief. I don't know if, uh, if people hear. I, in fact, I did hear someone say, oh, well, we Norwegians have a very high suicide rate. Not true. So it originated from a, a speech that Dwight Eisenhower gave in 1960. Uh, about the, uh, the evils of socialism, that if you provide for people, they lose uh, all sense of meaning in life and they kill each other, or kill themselves, I should say. Uh, I, I myself would have blamed it on the bleak existential films of Ingmar Bergman. But it uh, <laughs> turns out that we don't need an explanation because it isn't a fact. It is true that the Swedish suicide rate was higher than the American suicide rate in 1960, but as the graph has shown, uh, it, it has come down and now the United States rate is higher. Well, has this progress come at the uh, expense of the environment? And the answer is, of course it has. Um, the, uh, however, as countries become more affluent, they um, start to uh, turn their attention to the environment. People's values change. They put a higher value on environmental protection. And countries uh, have the means to afford more expensive and cleaner energy. Uh, we can see this in a graph for the United States, which shows that since the Environmental uh, Protection Agency was founded in 1970, American population has increased by 40%. GDP has increased by a factor of two and a half. Americans drive twice as many miles as they did uh, 50 years ago, but the rate of emissions of the five major air pollutants have come down by 60%. So the idea that uh, you can have economic growth or you can have environmental protection, but you can't have both, uh, turns out to be uh, false. There are other measures in which, even with the many threats to the environment that we uh, continue to face, there, there has been uh, progress. Because of the densification of agriculture, more food grown on less land, fewer forests have to be cut down and abandoned far farmland gets reclaimed by forest. At least in temperate countries, deforestation has fallen to zero and, and uh, even has reversed. Uh, deforestation continues in tropical regions, uh, tragically, but uh, the, uh, it is down from its peak in the 1970s and 80s. And more of the world is being protected against... Uh, Economic exploitation, the uh, amount of uh, protected areas on the land surface has doubled from 8% to 15%, and uh, the portion of the Earth's surface that's protected has doubled from 6% to 12%. And the biggest driver of environmental expo exploitation, namely human beings, uh, contrary to fear that a population bomb was going to uh, result in ever-increasing population followed by massive famines, the... Uh, Growth rate of the human population peaked in 1962, and it has come way down. And projections that take into account that as countries get richer, they have fewer babies. As people get more educated, they have fewer babies. As people move to cities, they have fewer babies. And as women become empowered, they have fewer babies. Uh, pro project that world population will, will uh, peak in 2070 and start to come down. 
So I hope to have convinced you that uh, progress is not a matter of optimism. It's a matter of being aware of certain facts. Now, how is the fact of human progress reflected in the news? <clears throat> well, one algorithmic analysis of the emotional tone of the news that tallied automatically the proportion of positive to negative words found that over the past 70 years, period in which our lives have gotten, as I've shown, longer and safer and better educated and healthier and happier, the New York Times has gotten increasingly morose and the uh, summary of the world's broadcast has gotten glummer and glummer as well. So why do people deny progress? Part of the answer I think comes from an interaction between the nature of human cognition and the nature of journalism. There is a well-known phenomenon in cognition called the availability bias, that people estimate risk and probability using their own brain search engine as a workaround. The more easily an example comes to mind, the more available it is, the more frequent people judge it. So for example, uh, in surveys, people uh, believe that uh, tornadoes kill more people every year than asthma attacks. In fact, asthma attacks kill about 40 times as many people as uh, tornadoes, but tornadoes make for really good television, and asthma attacks don't. Well, uh, consider the nature of journalism. Uh, news is about stuff that happens, not about stuff that doesn't happen. You never see a journalist saying, I'm reporting live from a country that's at peace or a city that has not been attacked by terrorists. Uh, also, uh, and this is a point made by, uh, I think originally made by one of the, the founders of PRIO, by uh, Johan Galtung, that um, news tends to be about events, not gradual changes. Uh, the news could have run the story, 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 30 years. But they never ran that headline because uh, it wasn't a particular Thursday in October in which it happened, with the result that a billion and a quarter people escaped from extreme poverty and no one knows about it. On top of this built-in uh, bias that's inherent to journalism, there is, as part of the uh, ethic of journalism, the feeling that only uh, negative developments are serious journalism, that positive developments are human interest fluff and government propaganda and corporate PR, uh, captured in a uh, humorous headline in the satirical American newspaper, The Onion, CNN holds morning meeting to decide what viewers should panic about for rest of day. <laughs> well, if you combine the nature of cognition with the nature of journalism, you can see why the world is coming to an end and always has been. There's also a negativity bias in our own psychology that uh, bad is stronger than good when it comes to human emotion. We dread losses more than we anticipate gains, phenomenon of loss aversion. And we think of, uh, about and feel bad events more than good ones, especially recent bad events, uh, captured long ago in an observation by Franklin Pierce Adams that nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. There's also uh, market forces in the uh, cutthroat market to be a, a prophet, a social critic, where pessimism sounds serious, uh, optimism sounds frivolous. As the, the musical satirist Tom Lehrer put it, always predict the worst and you'll be hailed as a prophet. Let me conclude with uh, three questions about progress and enlightenment that I suspect have occurred to many of you. First, you might think, well, isn't it good to be pessimistic, to 
be on our guards against complacency, to speak truth to power, to rake the muck? Well, not, not exactly. It's good to be accurate. Uh, of course, we have to be aware of danger and suffering and injustice wherever they occur, but it's also important to be aware of how they can be reduced. Because there are dangers of indiscriminate, fact-free pessimism. One of them is fatalism. If you believe that despite all of people's efforts to make the world a better place, things just get worse and worse and worse, well, why waste time and money on a hopeless cause? Uh, uh, why throw good money after bad? In fact, if you're convinced that we're doomed, that if climate change doesn't do, do us in, then runaway artificial intelligence will, the logical response is, well, let's just enjoy ourselves while we can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's another danger, and that is radicalism. That if you think our institutions are all failing and are beyond hope of reform, you'll be open to calls to smash the machine, drain the swamp, burn the empire to the ground in the hope that anything that rises out of the rubble will be better than what we have now. Or to empower an uh, aspiring leader who promises only I can fix it. Second question, is progress inevitable? And the answer is, of course not. Progress does not mean that everything becomes better for everyone, everywhere, all the time. That would not be progress. That would be a miracle. And progress is not a miracle. Progress consists of using knowledge to solve problems. Problems are inevitable, and solutions create new problems that must be solved in their turn. Also, against a backdrop of uh, incremental Im improvement, there can always be nasty surprises. And I've mentioned a number of them, or shown a number of them, the two world wars, the 1960s crime boom, AIDS in Africa, and the American opioid epidemic. And the world faces severe challenges that it has not solved, foremost among them being climate change and the threat of nuclear war. Uh, I devote a fair amount of attention to each of these in Enlightenment Now, and I suggest that we treat these as unsolved but solvable problems rather than as apocalypses in waiting. That we should uh, address climate change by decarbonizing the world economy as rapidly as possible uh, by a combination of policy, uh, namely uh, carbon pricing, and the development of low, zero, and eventually negative carbon technologies, and that we should... Uh, reduce the risk of nuclear war by denuclearizing the world's arsenals via a combination of just increasing the uh, stability of relations between nations so there's less chance of a um, provocation, uh, an accident, a misunderstanding, and in forms of uh, arms limitation and reduction, uh, possibly culminating eventually in global zero, the total abolition of all nuclear weapons. A concept that used to be associated with uh, folk singers and beatniks and eccentric professors, but recently has been taken up by some of the most hawkish of the Cold War hawks, including Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, uh, William Perry, and Sam Nunn. Just a, a, a hint that these are not utopian uh, aims, even though we are not on track to reaching them. Uh, one of them is the fact that there is an arc of decarbonization that, is, uh, that already takes place in economic development. If you measure how much CO2 does a country have to emit to produce a dollar of economic value, then uh, countries have undergone a, uh, an arc 
when they first industrialize, they burn lots of coal and uh, wood, but then they shift to lower carbon sources, to petroleum, then natural gas, and hydro, renewables, and nuclear. It happened in the UK and the US, happened in um, China, though with a spike from Mao's great leap forward when he forced peasants to smelt iron in their backyards, resulting in massive carbon emissions with zero economic output before China came to its senses. Uh, India has turned a corner, and the world as a whole uh, is now producing more wealth uh, with less carbon per wealth. Now, this does not mean, I must emphasize, that we are on track to dealing with climate change for at least two reasons. One of them is that uh, this is carbon produced per unit of wealth, and we're producing much more wealth. Uh, the other is that these numbers can't just be... Uh, stable or low, they have to go to uh, zero. In fact, they have to eventually go negative. But it does show that economic growth is not inherently tied to flaming carbon. And uh, a few people realize that how much denuclearization has already taken place, that uh, the world's nuclear arsenal has fallen by 85% during its peak in the uh, during the Cold War. Now, of course, there's a danger that this will be reversed and uh, we ought to uh, push back against it, but it shows that the uh, world's nuclear arsenal can be reduced. Okay, my final uh, question. Um, and this one is particularly poignant to me as someone who has argued for the existence of human nature. Does the Enlightenment go against human nature? Is humanism, as some uh, critics charge, arid, tepid? Uh, flattened, so that it just doesn't get people's pulse going. Is the conquest of disease, famine, poverty, violence, and ignorance boring? Do people need to believe in miracles, a father in the sky, a strong chief to protect the tribe, myths of heroic ancestors? Well, I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, we know that secular liberal democracies, and we are now in the uh, perhaps the, 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 the paradigm case, the prototype, are the happiest and healthiest places on earth, and they are the prime destination of people who vote with their feet. Uh, and I dare say that applying knowledge and sympathy to enhance human flourishing is heroic, glorious, maybe even spiritual. Uh, unlike hero stories, uh, which are fictions, this is no not just a myth, but it is true, true to the best of our knowledge, which is the only truth we can have, and it's a myth that belongs not just to one tribe, but to all of humanity, to any uh, creature uh, with, the, uh, with a sentience and the uh, desire to persist in its being, for it depends on nothing more than the conviction that life is better than death, health is better than sickness, abundance is better than want, Peace is better than war, freedom is better than coercion, happiness is better than suffering, and knowledge is better than superstition and ignorance. Thank you, and happy birthday, Priyal. Thanks for picking Priyal's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. You can also find a video of Steven Pinker's address there. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigauger. Music by Mark Manenemel.